0: University Press books. So I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: And welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Sarah and Larry Nanry about their new book What to Say Next. Successful communication in work, life, and love with Autism Spectrum Disorder. Using her personal experience living as a professional woman with Autism Spectrum Disorder, Sarah Nannery, together with her husband, Larry, offers this timely communication guide for anyone on the autism spectrum looking to successfully navigate work, life, and love. In What to Say Next, Sarah breaks down everyday situations, the chat in the break room, the last-minute meeting, the unexpected run in granular detail, explaining not only how to understand the goals of others, but also how to frame your own. Larry adds his thoughts from a neurotypical perspective, sharing what was going on in his brain and how he learned to listen and enlighten while supporting and maintaining Sarah's voice. At a time when more and more people have been diagnosed with ASD, especially women and girls. This book tells important truths about what it takes to make it in a neurotypical world and still be true to yourself. Well, Sarah, Larry, welcome to the show. Thanks
2: for having us.
0: Excited to be here.
1: Oh, it's really great to have you here with us today. So as we have gone through unprecedented times of the global pandemic recently, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from the experience.
2: Sure. Um, so the, it's, it's kind of, I think we're in a bit of a unique situation as many parents of young children are in the pandemic um, in that we suddenly had both kids at home with us. Um, so that affected a lot of what we could do throughout the day. Um, I, I actually um, lost my job during the pandemic because of cutbacks, because um, everybody was closing down. And so I ended up in a job search situation, which ultimately um, brought me to Drexel University where I am now, which has actually been a really amazing um, opportunity, and I've been very glad to be here.
0: Well, on my end, I had recently left my job before the pandemic, and then the pandemic hits, and you have, as a government contractor out here in the States, very little tax revenue, which means government agencies are not looking to hire contractors, So I overnight transformed to be a stay-at-home dad, which has been beautiful to start raising a one and now two-year-old, though I admit that uh, I'd like to get back into work and let some of the professionals who who know how to handle a a child in their terrible (laughs) twos go at it, um, especially when her older sibling is autistic and requires a little bit of extra support that takes a little bit of energy out of you. So looking forward to the future here.
1: And how did you adjust to to homeschooling? Is that what you had to do?
0: We, we were lucky in New York where we were previously, they were fantastic with doing a hybrid of home and in school for, for their children. And Cyrus took to it very well. I I think if anything, he enjoyed having a day at school and then a day at home school, which is just kind of him hanging out in his room and and resting and recouping from the social effort it takes for a young child who's neurodiverse to be um, going to school. So that I don't think was as challenging as, as it is for a lot of other parents. And it was just our situation.
2: Yeah, it was kind of a combination of being both lucky that they were so young and so the schooling, you know, didn't really factor as much into it. I could imagine like if we had middle schoolers or something and they were missing a whole grade, like that would be a little more stressful. But at the same time, also more stressful having the younger ones because they require so much more constant um, attention and supervision.
1: And you yourselves, did you develop any new habits, and perhaps the ones that you will carry forwards as well?
2: <laughs> you know, it's funny because that's that's the question that people who don't have kids would be like, yeah, maybe, sure, I I picked up drawing, or and maybe not, but with the <laughs> with the kids, it was it was almost just let's just get through this day right now because we're now full time child care providers.
0: (laughs) I don't know, Sarah. I mean, we moved so that we could have a backyard. We moved so that we could have two stories and some actual space. And and I think having a a larger living situation is a habit we're going to keep. It definitely pushed the, we can't live in a one and a half bedroom, New York apartment with two children. Mm. So that was, that was a big change earlier this year for us and seeing the children understand that they can have a playroom understand a little bit better about this is where we go eat this is where we have structure that that those core family components um, were definitely fostered with the covid uh, force of our move
2: yeah that has helped
1: excellent so can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and we'll start with sarah
2: Sure. Um, so I am um, I'm I'll start with like work life. So I'm a fundraising professional. Um, right now, I'm the Director of Development for Autism Initiatives at Drexel University. Uh, I've been with Drexel for about a year, a little over a year. And as I said, it was a great move for me. I'm really happy um, working in the field of autism. Being autistic, I think it brings a lot of authenticity to the work that I'm doing, to the donors I'm speaking with, the parents that I'm working with, um, the students. So um, I've been in fundraising for about 10 years, about as long as I've known Larry, really, uh, because he I met him right as I was graduating graduate school. And I kind of fell into New York City and fell into Larry and um, grew from there. I wasn't diagnosed autistic until I was 31, just a couple of years ago. So I grew up um, undiagnosed. And I think, you know, not just think, I know from people telling me that there are a lot of us, um, a lot of women, but also men in our 30s, 40s, 50s who went undiagnosed Um, Because a couple of decades ago, the diagnostics were just not as sophisticated as they are now. A lot of girls went uh, underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed because uh, practitioners maybe just didn't know what to look for in girls. Because it it can present a little bit differently just due to the way that the different genders are socialized. So I grew up kind of, you know, on the outskirts, the, the odd girl out, I guess you would call it. Uh, I was never quite in step with anybody. Um, I never really found a a social groove until I got to high school, and I fell in with the band geek crowd. Um, I found I found a talent in music, and that helped carry me through through college. Really, I was in the marching band, which gave me a lot of structure as an autistic person who. Um, I thrive in that kind of structured environment where I know what the rules are. I know how to, how to get ahead. Um, so that took me all the way through college and, um, I excelled academically. I never really had a problem there because again, I, I knew what the rules were, right. It was always socially that I was just not quite in step. Um, and then I met Larry. Um, I ended up moving up in my career. We got married It wasn't until I had my first child, uh, Cyrus, who's now five, that things really just started to be too much. And I I had to find some support uh, somewhere aside from Larry, who was already doing so much to support me.
1: And Larry?
0: So before I was a conscripted stay-at-home dad, Hmm. I've been a technologist since I was probably 10 years old. And as I had my own business at 14, I can comfortably say I I've I've been doing computers for the majority of my life. Uh, I really hadn't planned on meeting someone as awesome as Sarah, but uh, I got got lucky. It was at 11 years ago now. And maybe that's part of where the, the book title, what to say next comes from because we were at Starbucks, Penn station out here in New York and she was behind me and, and stuck on her phone and somehow we were able to communicate and three <laughs> hours later and sarah you did a great job of talking to me as <laughs> as painful as it probably was um, it was it was a good experience and then we switched to yahoo instant messenger
2: and i think you did most of the talking <laughs>
0: I, I i'm sure i did most of the talking as, as i am one to do uh And I think having maybe that experience of, for me, I didn't go to college. I was that computer geek that fixed everything from a very young age. And all of the opportunities for advanced computers weren't being taught in general and in proper education channels. So that was an interesting contrast that Mm -hmm. we were able to communicate about and just how could I get so far in life and, and afford my own Starbucks, uh, espressos without going and having a college degree.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So from there being able to share my lived experiences, uh, you know, they say street smart. I, I don't know if I'm really that street smart, but I was able to adapt and understand not only technology, but what people were looking to accomplish with these computers back in the 90s and mm-hmm. early 2000s when it was still very new, mm-hmm. and take that type of experience forward and feel very comfortable in different situations.
2: Yeah. You're people smart.
0: I'm people smart. There we go. And and I became Sarah Smart, <laughs> uh, which was, I think, an important part of you, you, you really thrived with having a partner who was going to invest in learning you and your quirks.
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: So Sarah, I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, have any advice for uh, students or young young career researchers um, with reflection to your education and how you managed your graduate school, for example.
2: Yeah, I mean, in terms of autistic students,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. um, I think that really the key for me, anyway, and you know, like I'll just say this caveat uh, my experience is my experience. Uh, everyone who is autistic or neurodiverse is very different in their experience, just like anyone else is different. Um, but for me, finding what I was really passionate about um, is what helped pull me through academically. So, um, you know, I. I think if I was trying to uh, force myself into studying something that I knew maybe was lucrative, like if I tried to make myself be a doctor or something, it just wouldn't. I I would not be able to find the motivation uh, to pull through those that that kind of slog. But um, other, whereas other people might have that passion. So for me, it was finding out what my passion was. I think. The one thing that I wish I had done uh, that might not occur to a lot of people who are autistic and academically inclined is to take some time between an undergraduate degree and a graduate degree to live in the real world, get a job, you know, even if it's just an entry-level job somewhere, but really um, learn what it is that you could be doing in real life. Because I think I stayed a little bit too long in the kind of ivory tower environment. And I got a graduate degree, which is amazing. Um, but I, if I had done maybe a year or two of just living in the world, I might have pursued a different type of graduate degree that might be more useful now. <laughs> not that it's not useful, but it could have been a little bit more applicable to the work that I ended up doing.
0: I, I really do want to share that I remember when Sarah first moved to New York and the constant struggle that she had of how to navigate that first those first couple jobs and how to really try to apply what you had learned in college, learned in your graduate studies, and that structure. And, and in work, it's much more about getting things done. It's about the interactions with people and networking and these things that school really didn't teach you. And again, I didn't go to college, so there could be some wonderful colleges and professors that talk about how office dynamics work.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, so maybe if you would have had that gap year, uh, if you would have been able to do maybe a large internship, just things that would have given you some of that experience.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because, and I, I, this is what I, how I think of it. like, I excel in an academic environment because it's very technical. I, I understand the, the rules that I need to follow. I understand how to research. I can write. I can, I can deal with information. Uh, it's people, when people come into the mix that I get confused. And, and when you make that transition from a, an academic school-type environment to the work world, suddenly... The two are not so separate anymore. The, the technical piece of the work getting done is wrapped up very closely with the people that you're working with and the people who are above you and beside you. And, and uh, that's where some of that disconnect, I think, happened for me, where I was very, I was excelling with the work, but I wasn't excelling with how to navigate things like workplace culture or office politics or how to read social cues, you know, all of those things were not something that you learn in college in a technical way.
1: So these important Sarah, uh, takeaways uh, you have brought forward to the public in your book, What to Say Next. So can you tell us what is it about and how did you come to writing it?
2: Yeah, it's actually about that, <laughs> which I think Lori was about to say as well. Um, it's about, so it's, it is, it's called What to Say Next Successful Communication in Work, Life, and Love with Autism Spectrum Disorder. Um, Larry and I wrote it together. And it's about all of those things that I learned uh, with Larry's help about how to navigate uh, the office culture or work culture in general, um, where the technical aspects come together with the social aspects and you really can't separate them out anymore. Um, We also, in the book, talk about our own personal lives. We talk about what it's like to be a neurodiverse couple um, in a long-term relationship. We talk about what it's like to be parenting, uh, both from a neurodiverse perspective, as well as parenting a child who is neurodiverse. And we also talk a little bit about some of the things that specifically um, an autistic brain might... Um, might fall into like traps in terms of internalizing too much or, you know, these kind of um, things that can happen when, when you're autistic more so than might happen to to other people Um, and how to work through some of those sensory overload, that kind of thing.
0: Well, the book, like this interview is probably going to go. And and I love that previous question still about uh, the graduate listeners here, you know, The chapters were written in such a way where Sarah got to converse and really talk about a portion or an aspect of her life. And then at the end of the chapter, I get to add my two cents. And and in this case, my two cents are, I remember when you had your first real professional, I'm sorry, your second professional job. And you had this realization that it was the quality of your work an aptitude, much more than your age, which dictated where you were going to go professionally and how you were going to succeed within that office space.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. We had that conversation about um, peers. About how my understanding of the word peer, like your peer in the workplace, is someone who's this basically the same age as you. And I had a few peers um, at that time who were around the same age, early twenties. You know. And, and you were helping me understand how no, actually, in the workplace, even though that's the technical definition of the term peer, your peers are actually the people who are doing this, the level and quality of work that you're doing, and you're at a director level, you're not at a coordinator level. And so you know, it's okay to, for me to be socializing with whoever, but think of myself as on the same level as the directors, even though I might be younger than all of them, <laughs> which, you know, throws me off because I feel like I should be with, you know, my peers, but learning that there are nuances to these these definitions and the ways that we think about how we, how we are in the workplace. I think there was also a second half of that question, which was why did we come to write the book, which I want to make sure we talk about, also because um, that's a big piece of of how this came about. I um, I had gotten to the point where Larry had helped me through this kind of fake it till you make it sort of phase of professional work life.
0: Your favorite type My, of experience?
2: Oh God! Uh, which I despised because I just not I'm not a faker. I can't fake things. Um, but uh, so many, you know, this is how so many people, most people go through the first few years of their work life, at least is kind of faking it until you make it. Um, so Larry got me through some of that early stuff and, and we were looking for more resources for me to figure out how, you know, what I was still missing, why I was still having some challenges, uh, in the workplace. And we, we have books on, you know, highly sensitive people. We have books about, you know, how to not be shy. We have books about, you know, what's that one, how to win friends and influence people. Great book. Uh, Right. Good book. But, you know, didn't really work for me because it wasn't written for me. It was written for neurotypical, you know, people. That's a, a term we could get into, but anyway, um, it was written for people who don't think the way that I think and I couldn't find any resources about office politics and navigating office culture that, um, that, would, that really spelled it out the way that I needed it. I needed step-by-step instructions. I, I needed like an instruction manual for the workplace, really. And there wasn't one out there that I could find. So that's ultimately why we ended up deciding to write this book.
0: Well, I think that's where the title for you works so well, what to say next. It really is like, all right, I've achieved this, what is the next step? What is the next process? And unlike college, where you can pull out the syllabus or pull out the the textbook, it's, well, what's the next day in the career. And, you know, having all of those books on our bookshelf were, were nice, but just didn't speak to who you were as a person and what you were seeking. So I, I always will fondly remember our conversation with our contact at the publisher and lamenting about the challenge and her coming back and saying, you know, this information is really not there in the world. And why don't you guys write it and um, actually start to explain what to say next and fill in that answer. So a couple years later, a COVID crisis later, here we are.
1: Well, let's delve into the science part a little bit. So can you explain to us what is autism spectrum disorder?
2: Sure. So uh, autism spectrum disorder is uh, it's it's officially a developmental disability uh, as defined in the diagnostic and statistical manual thing. <laughs> I hope I got that right. Um, but it is it's now a little bit different than it used to be. There used to be several other um, diagnoses underneath the autism umbrella, Asperger's syndrome was one, um, a couple other ones. They've expanded the diagnosis in, in 2013 to just include all of those things under autism spectrum disorder. Um, and it's basically, it's it's really just a difference or several differences in the way that one's brain is uh, wired, um, which which can manifest in differences in communication styles, differences in the way that we perceive the world. So a lot of autistic people can be um, hypersensitive, like bright lights that seem normal to you are very bright to me, or the opposite, hyposensitive. So they would need a lot more input in order to have the same level of perception. Um, And it just has to do with a different wiring in the brain Um, There's still a lot of, you know, studies about what it is exactly, but there's a movement within the autism community to move away from this word disorder uh, and change it to, you know, autism spectrum condition, or even just autism spectrum or just autism. You know, um, it's, we don't think of it necessarily as a disability or a condition even really, it's just a different neurology. And the only reason that it's seen as a disability is because it's a little different than the mainstream. And so it can present challenges when we're trying to interact in a mainstream environment.
0: Well, and that's where I can take some of that lovely, uh, lovely spoke science and add that autism, it comprises traits and like everything in science, things are evolving. So when you're able to think about yourself as a unique person, what are your traits that make yourself uh, a whole person? I think you can get closer to who you are, what your, what your personal struggles are, what your journey is going to be, what type of support you need. And right now with ASD being such a large encompassing uh, world, a large tent, there are no two people who are exactly alike. So finding your own path forward through having that diagnosis or having enough of those identifiable traits that you find you need some type of support is is
2: hugely important.
1: Mm-hmm. And where does this term neurodiversity fit in?
2: Yeah, so the term neurodiversity um, encompasses not just autism, but also many other different ways that, that brains can be wired. So that includes people who might be dyslexic, um, uh, ADHD is part of the neurodiversity umbrella. Uh, many other uh, types, of, types of brain n- neurologies like that. Um, so neurodiversity is a movement around, um, like I was saying a little bit earlier under the autism spectrum, uh, these are not necessarily disabilities, they're just different ways that people's brains work. And there are ways to be able to um, help folks uh, interact in a mainstream environment at the same level as anybody else. Sorry, I did just want to add, when I were talking about neurodiversity, we should also talk a little bit about the term neurotypical, which is supposed to be the antithesis of neurodiverse. Um, I think it's a little, I mean, it's helpful when you're talking about the difference between someone who's neurotypical, maybe has like a normal—and normal, and the normal. <laughs> this is where it gets problematic, right? A mainstream uh, brain wiring versus a a neurodiverse who might have a little bit of different wiring but no two brains are going to be the same and so there really is no neurotypical you know
0: no no there is not and (laughs) uh, for the purposes of the book I am identified as neurotypical and uh, it, it sounds lovely but for me I find it almost boxes me in more than I would like to be because I am unique. I have my own specific traits and desires and wants, and they don't always conform to the normal world. So that term neurodiversity, I think maybe going forward, we're gonna find that everybody is some degree of neurodiverse and the less that we try as a society throughout the world, of conforming to a standard or a particular set structure but rather identifying our uniquenesses and embracing those uniquenesses to to better come together if it's at work if it's in family situations schooling government wherever you are in life i i think that that's where we should all be striving to be diverse humans are diverse
1: so as you've explained, uh, autistic uh, people may see the world differently. And of course, uh, when when they read uh, how to make friends and influence people, maybe there's just not that much relatedness in there. So Sarah, was this really an inspiration for you to write this kind of manual that uh, autistic people can actually use in
2: practice? Yeah, that's exactly it. You hit it right on the nose because I um I am the type of learner, and this doesn't go for all autistic people, uh, and there's also people who are not autistic who also benefit from learning this way, but I'm the type of learner who needs it spelled out. I need someone to teach me explicitly what's going on in order for me to then be able to apply that knowledge in my life. So, you know, this goes for everything for me, I don't just pick up on things like, Um, you know, like we do as we go through life, like as you become an adult, I needed to learn how to shop, you know, where certain things are in the grocery store. Because when I was a kid and I was with my mom, I wasn't just picking it up by osmosis being there like other people might. I needed Larry to take me to the store and show me, okay, here's how you find out what's on sale. Grab the, you know, the, whatever that paper is. It's like the sale paper here's how you find the produce area. Like I needed someone to really teach me everything.
0: Yeah. I really did think at one point you were going to just wander off when we were going up and down every single aisle or just leave me, get in the car and leave and say, you know what, this relationship isn't worthwhile. (laughs) This was so painful.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, a grocery store is actually kind of an interesting example because oftentimes they're loud and bright environments anyway. So they're very overwhelming for somebody like me, but I needed the the step-by-step practical um instructions and i need that in work i need that when it comes to relationships you know sometimes we larry and i will break down exactly what it is that he needs from me because i'm i'm just not going to be able to read his mood or his body language which can be tough you know um so that's one of the reasons why the book was so important and we've actually gotten a lot it's it's really great to hear people who have read it, um, come back and say, Oh, my gosh, that's why my neurotypical, you know, partner does that or, or um, reading sections and thinking, uh, I think we somebody said to us turns out the best book for autistics is actually a book about how neurotypicals think. Right. It's almost like a manual both ways. It's a manual into what it's like to communicate for neurotypicals and also what it's like to be inside my head.
0: Yeah. The the successful communication part of the the title, What to Say Next, I think is, is super prescient because often I take the lead in doing social situations or even what we're going to eat and, and it's not because I'm belligerent but rather it's because Sarah and I have established enough rapport and trust that I can speak for her I can be her advocate and that at times can rub some people in social situations the wrong way people want to go and say hi Sarah and then ask about the weather and you know that's oh. going <laughs> to that's going to cause some, some hit points and so as we have developed our relationship and, and throughout our journey, I do a little bit more of that initial conversation and it, it's not again, because I want to hear myself speak, but it's to help Sarah be successful. And I, I never now have Sarah traipse around me at the grocery store. <laughs> uh, you can go to the grocery store with a list and get everything on the list. Plus whatever the, uh, the children grab and throw in the cart. Mm-hmm but you're not going on a Sunday ever to make dinner for the week.
2: Right. Um, oh God, that would be such a disaster. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, so I think that, that that, awareness and some of that friction that we had experienced was really a good motivator as we sat down to write the book, because we wanted to explain how we got to this point and how it works really well for Sarah So let let's embrace that rather than try to see what's wrong with her belligerent husband.
1: (laughs) I'm glad your grocery store trips are getting better. (laughs) Um, Can we talk a little bit about when Sarah got diagnosed? So how did this happen and how did this impact your life?
2: Yeah. Um, So uh, I was, as I mentioned, I was diagnosed at age 31, um, and it was really after uh, a year or more of thinking about it first uh, and trying to decide whether I wanted to pursue the diagnosis, whether we wanted to pursue it, but really more me. I it had it had just come to a point in my life where I was trying to juggle. Being a mom, being a professional, being a wife, and all of it uh, just became too much. You know, it's it's a lot for any person to be taking on parenthood and career and marriage. Um, for me, it got to the point where I no longer had any bandwidth to to be able to um, function in in each role at the level that I wanted to be able to function. Because for me, uh, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. Nothing can actually be perfect, but I need to be able to put hundred percent into each of the things that I'm doing. And I was not able to even get 50% of the way. Um, so we started looking into, I had thought back in college that I might be autistic but I never really pursued it because I wasn't having many problems other than socially. And I could try and muddle through that. Um, When it got to the point where I was having enough problems that I really needed some more help, I started to seriously look into autism. And I think um, I had read a few books. I read um, odd girl out by Laura James and the whole time I'm, I'm, Reading this book, thinking, "Oh my God, this is my life." You know, she was diagnosed with autism in her 40s. I read "Pretending to be to be normal" by Leanne Holiday Willie, also diagnosed as an adult, uh, and and everything was just speaking so clearly to me and who I was and the struggles that I was having. And so we finally decided that we were going to pursue diagnosis. I was uh, I was a little bit trepidatious because. I didn't want it to change anything about about the way that Larry treated me, about the way that anybody else treated me, about the way that I thought about myself. Um, I think ultimately it didn't change anything. Um, We are still the same people that we were before the diagnosis. And what it ended up doing was really just – setting me free, I think, in a lot of ways, it was very liberating to finally have a name for why I was struggling in certain situations, um, why I excelled in other situations. Uh, A lot of times, you know, I would be putting labels on myself that were not true, like feeling like I was lazy or feeling like I was forgetful, uh, when in reality- Yes. Okay. I am forgetful, but it's because I have executive dysfunction. There you go. So there are tools that I can use to help me with that executive dysfunction and make me less forgetful. Um, Same thing with like this, this label of being lazy, which a lot of autistic people get. There's an actual, um, there's an actual condition in terms of having inertia. You know, I need to, I like an object in motion stays in motion an object at rest stays at rest that's super duper true for me. If I'm at rest, it's going to be really hard for me to initiate, I have to tell my brain to tell the rest of my body to, te- you know, to like, get up off the <laughs> right. And this is not just in terms of movement, but also, you know, getting into work mode or getting transitioning from one thing to another, all of these things take me, my brain more time than other brains.
0: Yeah, I, you know I, I remember during the beginnings of you rooting out, getting the diagnosis, and if you were going to get the diagnosis, that there is this stigma, there's the preconceptions about what it means. And that was exasperated again, a few, you know, almost 10 years ago where ASD became a larger umbrella with a lot more people and, you know, you get stuck on a label rather than back to the person. Mm-hmm. So we did a lot of conversational work around you are who you are and you're just looking for language you're, you're literally looking for the answer of what to say next who is sarah and and that diagnosis was able to give you what that what that was and from there i think you've been able to really use this proper language you have executive function challenges you are not forgetful though i will still say you are forgetful mm-hmm. because i um,
2: i mean I'd that's how you know. it's perceived i you. Right?
0: that's the word i was looking for it's you know i still have those perceptions and that's something as much as we have this knowledge and this uh, this experience with writing the book and, and living with with children we still live our daily lives and we still have our daily challenges but be it to be able to go back to what that diagnosis is to be able to they say monday morning morning quarterback to sit down at night and say all right this was a real challenge today this was a real struggle what is the clinical understanding of that okay what is some things some new workflows or Mm -hmm. different ideas so that you can be successful in the world that we live in while still wanting to be an idealist and say, the world should support who you are. And that's, of course, mm-hmm. extremely important. And we, we need to do better in the, in the world and in embracing people who are neurodiverse. But the the diagnosis sets you up down that path to find some of those tools and understandings.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, there's, We've heard from other neurodiverse couples and and other folks who maybe got a late diagnosis or who are thinking about getting a diagnosis. And, you know, the diagnosis is really, it's for me anyway, it was just about being able to understand what, okay, I have this diagnosis. What are the things now that can help with some of the challenges that I'm having? Because, uh, you know, for someone who's forgetful and it's not about executive dysfunction, Maybe, like, uh, you know, a reminder here or there, or a, a reward, or some kind of like consequence, like, oh, if I forget to do that again, I'm not going to be able to watch TV tonight, or something like that. No chocolate. For <laughs> no chocolate. Uh, that doesn't work for me because my brain is literally not working the way that other brains are working. And so I need different tools to help me with my challenges. And I think that so many people. Especially when it comes to relationships, there's so much miscommunication that can happen when you have a neurodiverse relationship and someone who is maybe autistic, and uh, you know, speaking very bluntly about things might be unaware that they're hurting someone's feelings, and and yet the other person whose feelings are hurt thinks it was done on purpose because you know, if anybody was uh, going to say those things, they would know that. They were going to hurt someone's feelings, and yet we don't know. So I think the knowledge of of the diagnosis helps in those instances. Yeah, and,
0: and I want to take this moment to speak to the audience at large and acknowledge that depending on where you're living, what country or state or municipality, getting a diagnosis can be very challenging. It can be very costly, There can be time delays in getting it because the queue is so large and in some instances getting larger, um, look, we're not professional psychiatrists. We are two people who are experiencing life and we have, we were really able to resonate with some of the traits that Sarah was able to describe when she did some of that early research and decided to go get her diagnosis. And so what I'd like to say to everyone is, if you find some things in our book that speak to you, if you find some traits on the internet or in conversations, run with it and see if making some adjustments and if being introspective or saying, I'm not forgetful, I have executive function challenges, what can I do to, to be more successful? If you find some of these strategies working for you, that's, excellent and hopefully will make your life on a day-to-day basis go a little bit easier if you are able and you can pursue the professional support the diagnosis by all means information scientific information is very valuable and has been extremely valuable for sarah but we can't have that be the barrier there there are other ways to just identify yourself
2: Mm -hmm. yeah
1: Oh, such an important message yes thank you for that <laughs> so in your book you beautifully describe and also analyze some of the daily situations that uh, neurodiverse individuals might find a bit challenging so i was wondering if you could uh, give us a couple examples
2: sure so um i mean i'll i'll use some examples um from the book and you know there, there's one that I love that's toward the beginning It kind of just sets up the tone for everything. Um, And it's a story uh, of the two of us. So Larry, you can chime in, but um, this would happen so many times, especially early in our relationship, but even still now um, there's, there was one time when we were the two of us, this is before we had kids. Oh my goodness. Um, (laughs) We were walking down the street and, you know, Uh, This is before we knew that I was autistic. And Larry says, uh, you know, something like, oh, it's such a nice day, but the sun is a little bright. You know, I should have worn a hat. And my immediate response is, oh, let's go back and get you a hat. And, you know.
0: (laughs) No, it's just a nice sunny day and I'm engaging in a conversation.
2: Yeah. And he looks at me and he's like, no, no, I, it's fine. Let's, let's get. I'm just making conversation, right? So, I my immediate um, uh, default when it comes to communication is you're giving me information for a reason, and the reason is you should have worn a hat, and so we need to go back and get a hat, right? I'm always looking for the solution to what's going on, not understanding that there is a, another purpose behind communication. Sometimes, uh, many, many times, it's. It's about implicit emotional connection. And this is the type of connection that, that people form when they're just talking about surface level things like the weather or, you know, um, Oh, that's a beautiful car. You know, it does not look great. Um, I would be like, oh, okay, is that a car that you want to get one day? Or why are we talking about cars? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Because my brain is not picking up on the feel-good chemicals that uh, another brain might, just from this surface-level communication. So um, whereas Larry was wanting to just have some casual connection with me, it, it wasn't happening because I wasn't aware that that was something that that people do or that people need. Um, So, you know, we keep walking and I think there was something like um, it's a little breezy and I I resist the urge to say, well, do we need to go get a jacket, you know? Um, And then I switched the conversation into, uh, wasn't that a great Doctor Who episode last night? Because I could sense that he wanted to chat, but I was having trouble finding like what we could chat about. And so then I switched to something that's content driven, which is helpful for me in terms of now I can chat about something that makes sense to me. That's interesting. There's a reason we're talking about it because it's helping to unpack the episode that we saw, you know.
0: Yeah, that that episode we saw, one of the things we we found that's therapeutic for us and and supportive, we watch TV shows and we do it, of course, because it's enjoyable. We do it because it lets us unwind. But it's also a chance for us to have a shared bit of content that we can call back on the next day. How was that TV show? Were you still thinking about that magic trick or whatever the case is? Do you Can you believe that that person was the murderer? I don't think that episode was written. So giving ourselves some content that was shared that we could talk about mm-hmm. so it doesn't have to be about the weather. Yeah. Uh, or the, the, the shiny car, or what people are wearing, all, all of this noise that is um, not not valuable to you in terms of a conversation.
2: Yeah. And yet it's valuable to so many people because that's the level where you're getting the serotonin and the feel good you know, uh, response from your brain. Whereas my brain is not giving me that until we get into the nitty gritty, deep conversation bits of why we're connecting. So That leads to um, another example from the book, which was specifically about small talk. You know, small talk between a a romantic couple is a little bit different than small talk in, you know, work place where you don't have as much rapport, you don't have as much history with people. So um, there's the example of when I used to, back before COVID, when we were all working in places (laughs) and not working from home, um, where there was a break room and there was a sink and a fridge, uh, I would go to that area to get my, my lunch ready or something. And, and what I learned to do with Larry's help was take five minutes before going into that common space, uh, because I shared it with some other, um, higher level executives who might pop in. What I learned to do was take five minutes and just think, okay, here are the top four or five people that I might run into. Here is the one or two things that I might, you know, touch base with them on, whether it was a small talk item. If I know, you know, I don't know, whoever Mike is coming in and he likes the sports, I would have something ready.
0: It is always your what to say next.
2: (laughs) Right. What to say next. Um, Or if I had a report due to someone And I knew that they were anxious for it. I would have like a sentence ready. Oh, yep. I just I'm waiting on X from uh, X person and I'll get it to you by the end of the day kind of thing. Because if I didn't have those pre like preloaded responses to office level small talk when I was in the break room, I would draw a blank and I would be in the room with an executive who's just asked me a question and I would just be staring blankly like, Uh, give me a minute, (laughs) right? Which, you know, it's fine, but it also is a little awkward. And I wanted to avoid those kind of awkward situations. So that's where I one of the things that I talk about in the book is learning to just have like a pre, I have to do that all the time, I just have to prep myself for each step that I take, which, you know, in some cases, maybe I shouldn't have to do that. But it does help me just to feel more comfortable in different situations
0: what what i love about this question and, and what i love about something we did very early in our relationship and this is before the diagnosis this is really before i think we were even engaged we we identified that we do not compromise and that sounds bombastic and well of course everyone compromises and what we do instead is we identify what each other really enjoys. Uh, Early on, we did a lot of takeout food. As you're working several hours in New York City and then commuting in a subway system that's always 30 minutes late, you don't want to end up always having Chinese food because that's what your third option of compromising is. And neither of us would ever then get the food we wanted. So, So pretty early on, we said, look, I really like these types of dishes, Sarah, you like this type of food. And with myself taking the lead, just because Sarah would say, I don't care. Can you just get the food ordered? Cause I'm, I'm hungry and I'm, and I'm tired of thinking my executive <laughs> level it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, we would just choose. And, you know, some days I would order food I did not enjoy, but Sarah really did. And we, we take this compromise analogy all throughout our experience uh, together where we want what's best for each other as much as we want to be healthy and happy together. And this being very mindful, you know, I think we're, we're we're happy. We don't ever end up with Chinese food unless we really want Chinese food. (laughs) We don't end up with the third choice of of bedspreads because It's this weird topish color that just doesn't quite work, but you know, the other colors we didn't like at all. No, uh, the one room Sarah really enjoys and it speaks. The office where we spend a lot of time together looks a certain way, has some things for you, some things for me. Uh, And I I think we will continue to not compromise, but rather communicate and, and come together on solutions and answers that uh, make the most sense
2: right yeah and it's actually um i'm glad that you brought up the compromise thing because it's something that i learned uh about in grad school actually talk about applying things from grad school um is how to get to a a win-win situation right instead of a win-lose because a compromise is very often a win-lose right i'm uh, or or a lose lose you know because you're both ending up with right. something that you really didn't necessarily want but it's good enough um, and so we've found a way to to operate together in a way that that we get to a win win usually and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, evolving together and learning each other's tastes and learning each other's needs and desires um, one of the things that we talk about in the book uh, in the neurodiverse relationships chapter is this phrase, we are better together. Um, and that's something that, that I think, Larry, you said must've been within the first year that we were together that has just stuck with us, uh, you know, for the long haul, this idea that, um, we are better together. We, we are two whole people who come together to make something greater. Um, and I think that it, It can apply even larger than just our relationship. You know, we need the world needs different types of people to come together and work together and understand, you know, our work that we're doing and, and we're better together for it.
0: Consensus building. Let's let's come together.
1: And this leads very nicely to the next topic I wanted to ask you about. So what are the implications of including and supporting neurodiverse individuals in our society and also in the workplaces?
2: I think the implications are tremendous. I mean, I, first of all, we can't not do it, right? This is, <laughs> we, we have to be able to uh, work with all different types of people because it's so, so, so important to being able to evolve and having new ideas on the table and new ways of approaching uh, problems, um, new ways of, of working together in, in a world where things are changing rapidly, um, all the time. And so just like, any other form of diversity where we need to have different voices and different experiences and different ways of thinking at the table. Um, We need to be able to make sure that we're making space for all types of brains to be able to come together. And, you know, there's a lot of things that workplaces, all different types of workplaces can do to make sure that they are being uh, proactively inclusive, Of neurodiverse people, of people with disabilities, of any type of person, Um, and you know, there's a lot of learning out there, especially coming out right now. Um, You can look things up, but I think that it's it's going to be essential. You know, it's it's been essential, and the fact that we haven't been doing it has been a problem. So now that it's coming out a little bit more, um, I think it's a really really great thing.
0: Yeah, as we as, as we all go back to work and we have this opportunity to start mingling in spaces again, the, the bottom line, the output of what the work product is or the school product, that's what should be driving us. And if it's you're a checker at a grocery store or you're a director of a large corporation the the end results that we come together as a team to to do well i th- i think is super important and to work our way backwards to break down the components of the people their their traits their uniquenesses i think that the lar- the corporations and, and companies that are going to be the most successful and really a lot of the people that are going to be the most successful are the ones who take advantage of the uniquenesses of the people that they put together and not just what their resume is or not just their ability mm-hmm. to show up at eight o'clock every mm-hmm. single day, mm-hmm. which is very valuable. But if somebody is a 930 person, especially after a year and a half of working from home or what probably will be two plus years of working from home and they start at nine. Well, if the work product comes together. If mm-hmm. the team is comfortable, then let's embrace that and, and let's focus on the shared goals rather than the rigidity that, uh, at least myself I've seen, uh, throughout my professional career of docking people for these very pedantic bits of life rather than the solutions we're trying to put
2: together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's when it gets sticky when you try to fit individual people into a system. Yeah. Um, I would, I'd also just add that, excuse me, statistically speaking, um, one in, I think the the most recent stats from the CDC are that one in 45 Americans is autistic. Um, One in eight people is neurodiverse. So you know, you know somebody who is neurodiverse if you are not yourself and you probably know someone who knows someone who's autistic. So. The implications for the working world. Um, I think there's another statistic that something like uh, four, three or four hundred thousand like young adults with autism are going to be graduating uh, from school age in the next ten years. It's it's enormous. There are so many people who are neurodiverse, and they have we have so much to add to the conversation.
0: Yeah, I, I think when we get to hopefully write the next book that that we'd like to get out of our heads. I I really do want to change the language that, um, Larry is a neurodiverse person. I am a unique person. Sarah is a neurodiverse person who has been diagnosed as autism and, and really get down to that area rather than saying that I conform to a particular structure because, because I'm unique and we should be not afraid to embrace our uniquenesses.
1: So what discoveries about yourselves or society along your journey to writing your current book, what to say next, surprised you the most?
2: What surprised me the most? Um, I think so this book took about a year to write. Um, I found that it flowed pretty easily because it was just writing about my life. So it was things that had happened. Um, what surprised me often was reading was reading Larry's two cents, um, because often he would say things uh, that I didn't even realize he had been thinking at the time, or I didn't realize how I was coming off uh, just because of our communication differences. And so the most surprising thing for me, I think going through this whole process has been learning even a little bit more about the way that Larry's brain works and the way that I am perceived by people who don't think the same way that I do.
0: I love it because I am the beautiful balance to that. Uh, What surprised me is that Sarah, as much as you evolve and grow and and work to be successful, your executive functioning will never change. (laughs) And, with uh, two children who one day have a runny nose, the next day have to go to school early, the next week have this life experience. The amount of effort that that will always take you to adapt. Whereas I'm very comfortable in saying, well, I heard a sniffle last night. I'm just now naturally going to give some medicine in the morning. And it's all very subconscious. It's all very just matter of fact what I'm doing. And you're never going to have that as part of your repertoire. You're going to get up a half hour earlier. You're going to have to think through your day. And not that you're not developing shortcuts, not that you're not finding ways to be successful, but you're always going to have that extra effort required to adapt to the world. And, and though we talked about it, it wasn't until we really got the book done and, and going through it of, you know, the, the subjects change, you know, the, the workplace or the relationships or the parenting, but the, the, those fundamentals, the, the effort that you go through to develop what you call your workflows, that's always going to be a constant.
2: Yeah. It's, a, it's always going to take me a few extra steps to do the same thing that everyone else is doing.
1: So Larry, do you feel that you have to be careful what you wish for you might want a hat but you're definitely getting a hat (laughs) and sarah what kind of hat would you get larry
0: so so have you been looking at my my socials on Mm -hmm. on on my hat collection
1: Uh, (laughs) no (laughs) um,
2: well um yeah i think i think the question is like you know you kind of have to be careful what you say, uh, around me because, uh, well, like anybody does, but, but a little bit more in this situation, because you don't want me to always be necessarily jumping through all these hoops. Right. So, and I think you do, you know, Larry has, has, I think I'm speaking for him, but for, from my side, it feels like you have really learned how to, um, filter some of your communication in order for my benefit so that I'm not always trying to find a solution for you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, that's why I, I did the past joke there to, to just really illustrate that I am definitely mindful of our conversations with other people as much as in ter- you know, between ourselves. And there are times when I, I have to throw caution to the wind and just, communicate a certain way because of the circumstance it's this phrase you you can't always be on yeah we're human we're, we're we're living and the the world doesn't stop even when we need a timeout. so finding where to be the most receptive the most aware of what is going to make you the most successful make us the most successful and when it's just this is what it's going to be. We'll get through it and we can look at it later, be retrospective and hopefully uh, do better the next time. Uh, it's it's not an exact science, but it is um, something we work towards. Yeah.
2: Like not everything can be perfect, which is something that I've learned that you've helped me learn because I've always tried to do everything perfectly in my whole life. And it's just not tenable. You just can't get through life being perfect. Um, And which is, is so tough, like going back to you having to filter your language a little bit, you know, if you don't say something precisely enough, I'm going to get confused. You know, if you say a a word, an extra word or something that you didn't quite mean to say, or you say, um, go upstairs and get the medicine, but the medicine is actually downstairs. You know, we, we run into these communication problems because, uh, I'm not able to intuit some of the context of, of course, you meant downstairs because we specifically last night put the medicine downstairs so we would know where it was, right? I'm not going to remember these things. So the language uh, uh, precision that you have to go through, I'm sure, is exhausting sometimes. Well,
0: unfortunately, we've been together now a decade, so I get a little bit of a mulligan when I'm not as precise. And Mm. I allow myself uh, maybe to a bit of a detriment to not always be on. Uh, I do feel guilty when you do traipse up the stairs for the medicine and yet you're the one that put it downstairs cause that was the proper place for it and, and you know that, that language, that that little bit of effort. But we can't we can't kill ourselves on the, the perfection for what is truly wonderful being together.
1: Oh very well put. Well we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
2: Yeah, so um, we, uh, we really would, you know, we're thinking about what the next book might be um, because there is a lot in the What to Say Next book, uh, but there's also so much more that uh, we have to share and that we've learned, especially as our children are growing, which they're doing every second of every day, um, they're relentless. <laughs> so, you know, we, we are looking at uh, what might make sense in terms of perhaps a book that focuses on parenting specifically, um, being a neurodiverse parent, being a neurodiverse couple parenting, parenting a son who's autistic. Um, so uh, that's definitely something that, that we think a lot of people would benefit from, just like a lot of people who, who have read our book, our current book, have said you don't have to be autistic to learn a lot of things from the, the experiences that we've had together. Um, and so I think, you know, the next one will be something that's focused uh, similarly, you know, anybody, any parent who's maybe having some of these struggles, doesn't matter if you're autistic or not, uh, it could be helpful for. Her.
0: Well, and uh, I would love for that to be the next book though, as we're incubating it equally more about, my side, that, uh, partner of a neurodiverse person Mm -hmm. and being able to share more of that insight. And, and, you know, maybe it's not gonna be Sarah's two cents, but Sarah's, um, quarter in, in response to how we structure everything.
2: Oh, I get 25 cents. I think
0: you get 25 (laughs) cents. Look, Sarah, you, you, you wrote the book. It's, (laughs) It's beautifully written and people would enjoy, uh, reading more from you.
1: And where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book?
2: So the book you can find, uh, if you just Google what to say next autism, uh, our book will come up. You can also find me pretty easily online. I'm Sarah Nannery everywhere. So I'm, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. We also have a website that's just www.sarahnannery.com. And there's everything is on there as well. Um, Larry is also pretty easy right yeah just
0: look for Sarah and and since I gave (laughs) you this this great surname it's n-a-n-n-e-r-y it's all n's as in Nancy as I've learned to say since I was like six years old and
2: yes
0: (laughs) uh, uh, but really it's Sarah you're you're the beachhead for all of this this work and information that we're we're putting out there
1: Excellent. Well, thank you to thank to both thanks to both of you for joining me today and for this really insightful discussion.
0: Couldn't uh, couldn't be more appreciative. Thank you so much.
2: Yeah, thank you.